very hard to talk about cyber deterrence right now and cybersecurity when we had what is arguably the most important cyber attack campaign in history. If our reaction to that has been to try and act like it either didn't happen or there's nothing that we can do about it. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and I'm joined in the studio by Peter Singer. He's a strategist at New America and editor at Popular Science Magazine. He's also author of Ghost Fleet, a techno-thriller on the future of war, and Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know. And by phone from San Francisco, Bruce McConnell. He is Global Vice President and Chief of Cooperation and Cyberspace Initiative at the East-West Institute. He was formerly Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Cybersecurity in the Department of Homeland Security. And we're also joined by FP's Elias Grohl, who covers cybersecurity and the Russia investigation at the Department of Justice. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Well, it seems this week that just about everything is cyber, and I wanted to start off with something on sort of the more wonky side, but I think is actually quite interesting, which is the impending split of the National Security Agency with Cyber Command, which was formulated under the Obama administration, and then has sort of just been left out for for the past few months, and now is apparently coming to pass. Elias, what is the significance of this move? Basically, it means that the Cyber Command is going to stand on its own feet. It's going to be what's called a unified command. It's going to act more independently in the National Security Agency. The two organizations are going to be split apart. Cyber Command isn't going to be able to rely on the National Security Agency in the same way that it has in the past for personnel and expertise. Uh, they're going to have more acquisition authority. Uh, Cyber Command, as it exists right now, exists under STRATCOM. Uh, and now it's going to be elevated up. Uh, to be on par with the other uh, military commands around the world. Basically, uh, Cyber Command has has been told that uh, it's no longer a a child. It's grown up. It's going to act on its own and uh, do the dirty work of the American military uh, in cyberspace. Peter, what does this mean in practice? So if there is an operation, an offensive operation that Cyber Command is in charge of, what are the practical implications of being split off from NSA? So essentially, it's part of recognizing both that this has become a battle space and also that Cyber Command is going to be more operational in it in a tactical manner. That is, when you're you're combining some kind of traditional military operation like an airstrike, you would call in cyber fire, so to speak. I mean, the reality is pull back on this. Organizationally, the combination um, – wasn't the the ideal uh, in a lot of different ways. It reflected the the start of this back in the day, but basically to give you a wonk version, it was like having the head of Pacific Command and the CIA dual-hatted. To give you a sports version, it would be like having the coach of the New York Knicks and the general manager of the Rangers be the same person. They're not just two different important organizations that are playing in sort of the same space, but they also, by their very nature, have to have very different outlooks. It also, um, this dual-hiding structure reflected an irony that no longer makes sense in the post-Snowden era, where originally one of the reasons for having it be the same person was that back in the day, Congress worried that the new, back then, head of the Cyber Command wouldn't be able to speak with authority and notice, particularly engaging back with Congress. The irony is like after Snowden, 
the NSA side is all that Congress and everyone else, including the media, wanted to deal with. And you could see that, for example, in Admiral Rogers's um, confirmation hearings, which were confirmation hearings for Cyber Command, and yet everyone just wanted to talk about the NSA side of things. So uh, this is something that, that's been a long time uh, coming and, frankly, a little bit overdue. But there are times, of course, part of the issue was that NSA has different interests. It might want to tap into a stream of intelligence and an offensive operation is sort of a diametrically opposed. So how will that play out? It's uh, actually overdue. I agree with Peter. It's overdue, but from a policy perspective, because military and intelligence authorities are different. And it's important to keep that distinction. It's difficult enough already in cyberspace to figure out who's doing what under what authority uh, without compounding the problem by having an ambiguous governmental organization. And so this combining of military and intelligence under one hat, which was necessary at first because it was a startup, fed suspicion overseas that so-called exploitation, i.e. listening, was actually an offensive activity because you couldn't tell. Uh, Even though within the joint uh, operation they had lots of protocols and, you know, they had military officers doing some functions and intelligence people doing another function and are sitting beside each other. So they're trying to pay attention to all this. But the optics of it and the authorities part, I think it's much cleaner this way to stay legal and to make a better story overseas uh, regarding what the U.S. is up to. Was there ever any doubt that the Trump administration would go through? I mean, it sounds like it was pretty uncontroversial. It started under the Obama administration. Were you concerned at all that the Trump administration wouldn't follow through with it? From my standpoint, it's obviously hard to make assumptions about what the Trump administration is going to do. So I think everybody was waiting to see. I'm glad to see it finally come through. It was also more controversial. Uh, you know, this this was pretty contested back in the day, and 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 the fact that it it's it's a can that's been kicked down the road for several years. So um, it's not not a gimme, I guess is the way to put it. What will actually be the functional? I mean, so when you actually split them out, how will it change things on a day to day basis? The real question is. What does this future cyber command look like? What are its parallels in the military side? And you see people saying everything from, oh, it should one day be its own service, uh, equivalent to like the Marine Corps, to that's that's unlikely. Uh, I mean, it's sort of bizarre. We're talking about creating a space corps and we haven't even worked out the cyber version. The real question is kind of its its role. Is it going to be more like a um, transportation command where it's supporting other uh, commands or I think it's more likely to look like Special Operations Command at the end of the day, where it's sourcing people from each of the services, but it has its kind of own unique identity. It's got its own budgets and the like to the way it operates is that in some cases, it's going to be global and other places, it's going to be jumping in and out of the theater commands. And I think, you know, that parallel of Special Operations Command is uh, it's also apt in that, you know, we've been at that side of things for you know well over 50 years and we still haven't mastered kind of the bureaucratic who does what it's still a problem out in the field we should you know expect that it's going to be the same thing on the cyber side that's not a bad thing that's just the reality of it I think it's also worth noting that the the most high-profile mission for Cyber Command to date has been the campaign against the Islamic State, and it's one that they've gotten a lot of criticism for, and that there's been a sense of dissatisfaction within the administration, within the White House, that they haven't been able to get uh, sufficient results in that campaign. And what they're actually going to be able to achieve with these types of missions, kind of concrete military outcomes, is going to be something that I think will be fascinating to watch. 
It, it also reflects the nature of the target. You know, they're they're right. going after when we say you know taking away from from ISIS. It's not like ISIS is using you know power grids and uh, surface to air missile batteries. Some of the things like, for example, that Israel was able to do against targets, or that would play out in a U.S. Russia U.S. China scenario. They're also to go back to to one of the questions you had earlier is there's a different mentality. So there are things that you could take away from ISIS. It's you could take away its access to the internet itself, but oh, by the way, the intelligence people would say, "Hey, hold it! That's where do you think you're getting the targeting data for? You know, not the cyber side, but where where to drop the bombs? Don't take it away." And so that's that balance between the operational side saying, "Take it away, destroy," versus the intel people saying, "No, no, no, no! I want to watch. I want to observe. I want to stay inside the network." Well, that's a great point. So, who do you think would have the leg up in that bureaucratic battle? Whose voice would win out? No, it's very situational. You know, these conversations go on all the time, and uh, it's equities balancing, as they say. And so it's not obvious uh, who would win all the time. Intelligence people always want to collect for as long as possible, and sometimes you have to take stuff out. And it happens. Uh, the other comment I would make was on the point of, you know, that we're not, they're not doing that well against ISIS. So actually all of U.S. forces are better arrayed against more conventional adversaries than against a non-state actor like ISIS. Uh, it's not, cyber's not unique in this problem. <laughs> well, let's take a specific example. There was the Washington Post report on the Obama administration's plan to retaliate against Russia for interference in the 2016 elections. And there was the fascinating passage of the article, but also very vague about that the implants were developed by the NSA and designed so that they could be triggered remotely as part of a retaliatory cyber strike in the face of Russian aggression, whether an attack on a power grid or interference in a future presidential race. So I have two questions related to that. So again, under the Cybercom NSA split, those implants, that sort of attack would be carried out by Cybercom or how would that work? Now you're uh, it's you're asking both a operational but policy and legal question, right? Well, so is the activity that you're in and let's just use non-cyber equivalents. Okay. Is the activity a CIA agent planting a bomb and we've defined this as an espionage operation? Um, and we're talking here a physical impact target type thing as opposed to CIA agents stealing a secret versus an Air Force bomber jet dropping the bomb. Same thing when you're, you're talking here about not outright war, but covert operations, espionage operations going back and forth. And then you get into these wonderful things of, you know, which title, title 10, title 15, like, and, and the like. But, you know, the reality is most of the, what you're talking about here is not cyber comm business. You're talking more about the covert operations world. But I read this more as an implant that would destroy something, a kinetic uh, – I mean, you know, kinetic related to cyber in that sense. It depends on what the scenario you're talking about. So if the right. scenario is Russia conducts an attack on – you know, for example, we've seen recent news that they were – they created sort of the version of digital beachheads within um, U.S. infrastructure, including kind of scarily enough a nuclear power facility. Um, they didn't do anything. They, they didn't turn it off. They didn't cause physical change. But they were – creating these beachheads. And so if they, for example, did something to turn them off, to, to cause physical damage, to cause Americans to be hurt or killed, 
our retaliation would not be, Russia, we're going to steal secrets from you. Our retaliation would be, we're going to cause physical change for you. And it might be through cyber means, turning off your like systems. or Which would be Cybercom's responsibility. Most likely. It depends. Are we at war? Are we, you know, are we in a state of war with them? Are we doing espionage operations back and forth? And the point here is the, the lines, the activities are fuzzy. Um, it depends on what you're talking about. The Similar the example of, let's say it's one of the retaliatory measures that we could have and frankly should have done back to Russia is, okay, you penetrated our networks, you doxed, you revealed embarrassing secrets. Guess what? Authoritarian governments with money hidden around the world have embarrassing secrets too, and they have a way of making themselves uh, revealed to the world. We could have done like for like as a retaliatory measure to show our displeasure, punish back, make them understand that their activities come with consequences. That doxing where Putin and oligarch money is hidden would not be a cybercom operation. You're moving more there again into the espionage realm. Sort of like the Panama Papers, yeah. We were not behind that. I mean, let's, <laughs> now, now we get really conspiratorial. Uh, yeah, it would be an interesting point of discussion. <laughs> I think that the uh, interesting thing about the Post report was that it said that the president authorized, President Obama authorized planting cyber weapons in Russia's infrastructure. So there's a lot of implants uh, all over the world that have been planted, as, as Peter says, uh, by intelligence services. Not only our intelligence services, but other intelligence services have implants everywhere. Those purpose, the purpose of those uh, implants, of course, is to listen and gather intelligence. Uh, and uh, any implant, once in, can be used for other purposes. It can be uh, turned into a vehicle to destroy things uh, or attack things. So once you're inside the network, covertly, uh, you can do uh, a lot of things. So you can turn an implant, uh, a listening implant, into a, into a, you can weaponize it. The difference here is the idea that we, uh, that the president authorized anyway, uh, the placement of such implants uh, inside infrastructure, which are not generally intelligence targets, because you don't really, you're not necessarily trying to collect information about how a, how a power plant is operating from an intelligence standpoint. So there'd be a different, these would have been, if they are ever done, if this is done in the post said this is still in the planning, or was still in the planning phases, uh, it becomes a different, with a different intention. And so that's, I think, what's interesting about this, about this thing. Now, Peter gets to the good point we've been discussing, are we at war or not? And there's a whole set of rules uh, about when, what you do when you're at war and when you're not at war. And uh, those rules are murky in cyberspace. So there's a lot of work going on to try to come up with norms, both for behavior by states in peacetime as well as by war. That's important work. And Peter, you sounded like you had something you wanted to yeah, add Yeah, there's there. another aspect of this, which your question and the, and the mention of the Panama Papers brings up, is that the this is in the space of the coulda, woulda, shoulda in the past to should do in the future. Um, there are all sorts of retaliatory measures that you can take when, when someone uh, attacks you, particularly in cyberspace. And it might be a like cyber action, uh, but also you have all sorts of other measures. And the Panama Papers is an interesting one in that um, their reaction to this disclosure from just one law firm, notice how crazed the reaction was to it. And there's a lot more information out there. It points to a pressure point. 
essentially you can identify what regimes fear by what they overreact to, what they try and ban discussion of. Uh, China, a similar example in the Panama Papers where literally um, it bans the word itself. You can't find it. And so the point is, is that Russia has been engaging in cer- certain activities in cyberspace and not been getting pushed back in areas where we can see clear vulnerabilities. Another example would be, you know, we're seeing this incredible overreaction. Uh, think of think of all the um, activity they um, engaged in related to the sanctions that were put in place on a limited number of individuals, uh, you know, the ones named after a, a Russian lawyer who was murdered, and then we're, you know, getting meetings out of it. We're seeing activities and, oh, but it's just about adoption. The point is, if they're reacting that way, to an incredibly limited set of sanctions, if they're reacting that way to the disclosure in just one law firm, wow, we've got a pressure point. And more broadly, we're talking about a nation with an economy that's the 13th largest in the world. It's Spain's equivalent and falling and incredibly undiversified. Huh. There are a lot of other things that we could be doing if we wanted to. Well, let's say that perhaps, you know, some unnamed government was involved in the Panama Papers Act. I mean, maybe you've answered that question already through that. But why haven't we seen then retaliatory hacks of government officials' emails, accounts, and massive – I mean, are they just using better passwords than us? I Sorry. Mean, where, where, no, no, no. Where, meaning, I'm, I'm going to say, where have you been? Like, <laughs> like, there haven't been hacks of government officials' accounts? I'm sorry. You, Russian government officials. Russian government uh, officials. Um, are they just – You have a broader question um, you're asking about how – look, I I'm, earlier today did a, a meeting with um, various – U.S. government folks on cybersecurity. And the ending of it was um, me sort of pleading to nods but frustration saying, look, it's very hard to talk about cyber deterrence right now and cybersecurity when we had what is arguably the most important cyber attack campaign in history. And let me be clear here. We're talking about um, American targets of both parties, the DNC and the RNC. Individuals of both parties, John Podesta, Colin Powell, not just um, political organizations, the Pentagon Joint Staff email system to non-governmental organizations that range from banks to think tanks in D.C., to not just American but allied entities, again, that range from um, military organizations like the Danish Defense Ministry to political ones like the German Bundestag to international organizations like the World Anti-Doping Agencies. All of these identified as being targeted by this broad Russian campaign that's been documented both by American allied intelligence and five different cybersecurity companies. And it's very hard to talk about cybersecurity if our reaction to that has been to try and act like it either didn't happen or there's nothing that we can do about it. We can't talk about cyber deterrence if we just wink and nod at the most important case of it in the history of the field. So it's become a politicized issue, in other words. I mean, obviously. <laughs> I mean, Slight understatement. No, 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 no. Yeah. but I mean, in the sense of trying to come up with a, a response plan. But, but again, this is not a partisan thing. The problem right. is, okay, moving forward, what are the lessons, not just that a Russia, but every other actor out there, both other state governments to non-state actors like we're seeing interest in this space by drug cartels. What is the lessons that that they take from kind of the cost-benefit analysis? Low-level investment, massive gain, very little to no consequence afterwards. So you can't talk about cyber deterrence 
and 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 say, well, gosh, this you know we're gonna we're gonna ignore the 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 mega case. I mean, all of these targets that we're talking about, right? They've always been legitimate intelligence targets, right? And American intelligence agencies are probably targeting, you know, the equivalent versions abroad. They're just not leaking the. This the goes back though to what of, Bruce was saying of um, how you frame war. This is not outright conflict, but there is a better parallel if you think about kind of Cold War and the jousting back and forth of both intelligence stealing secrets. Some are legitimate targets under the old kind of rules. Some are not. But then there's also, you know, this the link is to influence operations, disinformation campaigns. This is something bigger. So you can't just kind of look at it. There's a cybersecurity side, but there's also kind of a larger geopolitical strategy side. To so it. I have a legal question. I'm sorry, Bruce, go on. I was just going to say uh, that's one thing that's interesting that's happening now uh, because this beer used the word information operations, influence operations, and so this has now become part of the the umbrella blanket term of cyber. Everything is cyber. So you have fake news, you have doxing, you have uh, all this these things which are now just cyber versions of uh, political tactics, if you will, uh, that um, have been used in the past, but because of the way. Uh, cyber works, uh, the cost uh, of entry, the barriers to entry are very low, and the magnitude, because of the megaphone effect of cyber, uh, is much bigger. So it's changed the dynamic, just like cyber crime. These are regular crimes, theft, fraud, uh, you know, trespassing, uh, which now t- have taken place, which take place now in the cyber domain, and it's much easier for criminals, or in this case, malicious actors of various sorts, to have an effect. Uh, and we're not used to that. We don't know yet as a polity how to make, uh, to, to calibrate and filter uh, this uh, false news and, and all this other stuff. Well, that's an interesting question, especially when it comes to influence operations. So suppose the U.S. did you know, hack or authorize the hack of Russian officials or Russian political figures' accounts. They I'm assuming they can't dump those emails to a U.S. news agency or in the U. I mean, what what sort of legal restrictions would they be under? I I think that, I mean, usually the problem would be that they wouldn't want to because uh, they would reveal uh, their ability to get that stuff. And as we were talking before, the Intelligence Committee would say, you're going to dry up our source. Uh, And so this would remain classified, and that would be the problem. Assuming the information was collected legally, there would be no legal bar other than the classification that I know of uh, to prohibit uh, them. And the president can always uh, declassify something and, and release it, as we've seen. This is not just an interesting sort of legal question. It also points to how you have to think about um, the value of classification, particularly when it comes to disclosure. And we could see this playing out in the um, 2016 election campaign hacks, where there were certain things that the government, the intelligence community knew and was um, in some cases unwilling or unable to share uh, and it sort of clouded the discourse until later on, I believe it's December 28th when it's frankly too late, then it discloses more and you're like, 
good, you know, yes, you lost access, but the stakes here were greater. And again, this is this this same discussion goes back to where we were before. That's a political debate, but it's much the same if you're going in some future conflict between Cyber Command, where Cyber Command is saying, you know, uh, look, I need to take down that network. I need to destroy access versus someone saying, no, 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 I need to maintain access. It's my, if you, if you operate in this way, uh, it'll let them know that I'm there. I won't be able to gather secrets in the future. And look, this will, the very same thing takes us back to World War II, where the debate's over. Um, Enigma, you know, there are certain things that we knew the Germans were uh, going to do that they didn't share with operational commanders because it would cost lives. We say the value of it was greater in the future. So it's a long running debate. Um, the takeaway here, though, writ large, is we are in a space where we're going to – yes, there are continuities. Yes, there are lessons from history. But we're also going to have to reframe the way we think about it. We're going to have to understand that certain things don't fit within either old organizational or conceptual boxes. Um, the There's just a lot of different change going on. And unfortunately, it's hard to have that discussion now. That's a tough discussion anyway. It's hard to have it when you have – a certain part of the body politic that's literally in denial about both the actions and the stakes. Well, that's not changing anytime soon, I would suspect. So what do you think will happen over the next few years? (laughs) In the cyber realm, not for the entire Uh, it'll keep getting interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it may be then just a footnote to all of this, but there was also the news this week that the Trump administration has said it will shutter the Office of the Coordinator for Cyber Issues at State Department and fold that in aside. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on this, Peter? Uh, pretty much every uh, – I won't say every, but I will say um, a large number, the vast majority of both cybersecurity – and diplomacy experts would say this is a bad idea. I keep thinking about you know the old Saturday Night Live sketch, bad idea genes. This is one of them. And there's an irony in it uh, in that we were the first to create an office like this for how, how do we bring together, how do we merge together diplomacy and cybersecurity and governance issues more than 20 other nations said, that is a great idea. We ought to do the same. And then now our action is to go – is to take away our ability to speak in that manner. It's zany. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not the way to make America cyber great again. So, so I th- I'm not – you know, I think it hasn't been officially announced that they're going to – No, no, it. I don't they, think it's officially yet. And, and in fact – you know, is whether or not you need an office. What's important is the function uh, that it be performed and where you situate it and how visible you make it. You know, you can argue about that. It's, but I thought it was ironic that the warm work uh, closing the war crimes division also uh, this week. So, uh, but the uh, administration two, is two taking longer. Yeah, cyber war crimes. Check right. But the administration is taking longer than most administrations do to 
figure out that the career civil service can actually be trusted to serve the president's agenda consistent with law. And so you get this whole uh, general view that we don't need all these offices, we don't need all these appointees, uh, we can run this on a much lighter weight infrastructure at the top, and you know that has some attraction. Uh, organizations do get hidebound and stuff, but in critical functions like this, I think I'm in. The, I'm with the majority here to say it, somebody needs to do this and be a voice, an official voice for the U.S. Uh, with counterparts all over the world uh, who want to talk about cyber and uh, security, cyber and uh, democracy, and all those kinds of uh, issues because uh, there's a lot at stake. And, and, and it, it parallels, you know, what's going on in I think other policy areas where if. The U.S. doesn't have an official in this role. If you don't have an office, the effect of it is not just um, – it's tougher to coordinate inside our government, but it means we literally don't have a voice at important international meetings where the agenda for the future in this space is set, importantly at a time where China and Russia are being incredibly strategic in how they want to shape the future in this space. And so, you know, if the United States isn't there and not just, you know, not playing a leadership role, but literally if we're absent, we're deferring the conversation to states that want to see the the internet and global politics look fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. Well, Let's talk about the future for a second. Your your novel, Ghost Fleet, was before any of the reports on election hacking, and you were to some extent looking at the future of cyber warfare. How have things turned out compared to what you thought about the future, which was – this was two and a half years ago that it was released? Three? So, yeah, Ghost Fleet uh, came out two summers ago. Right. Um, but it still applies now. Still a great summer beach read. Uh, <laughs> Buying multiple copies. Promo, promo. Um, no, so, look, there's certain – the key for the book was that it's a novel, but it came with 400 footnotes to document how every single um, technology and trend, even some of the quotes in it is real. So that's sort of the, the nonfiction side of it. And the result is that we've seen a lot of different things um, play out, uh, everything from use of influence op- operations to the greater importance of news being broken through social media to certain of the um, both government and infrastructure breaches. Um, obviously, we're not at outright conflict. So Ghost Fleet plays with the what if, you know, not someone is inside the power grid or inside the intelligence um, agency network, but what do they do with it? There's another aspect of it, which is the we had a little bit of fun with the dysfunctionality of American politics. Um that that part, wow, uh, you know, in no way, shape or form did we capture that. And that's actually it's funny. Um, yesterday, it was going back and forth with someone about the challenge, you know, this is to put my fiction writer hat on the challenge right now is if you're trying to write in quotation marks, realistic fiction, particularly like political. Like, look, the stories, if you had this in a book, you'd be like, come on. Like, no, you, you, you wouldn't believe that movie or that, that, novel and both kind of the overall actions to the dumb mistakes that people are making, it just wouldn't be realistic. And yet it's happening now. So I wonder about like, what's the knock on effect? What are the The death of political fiction? (laughs) Like, what are the espionage or spy novels going to look like in the future when, you know, the the guy tweets out the the secret. I mean, you know, look, you're going to like this. Yeah, but the, you know, the, 
know, this is like, you, this is sort of, you, you can't make this stuff up, which we've all been, on the one hand, you know, kind of enjoying. But on the other hand, what happens, and we saw this during the campaign, it's like uh, the people are so surprised by the actions of the leader of the free world that they're like, oh, my gosh, he did what? And this doesn't get you anything. You know, it, staying shocked is is not uh, a way of dealing with what's happening. You have to get beyond that. And I think what is you can see that? now the Europe, <laughs> it's, it's hard to, uh, but the Europeans are starting to figure that out, you know, and they're like, okay, you know, we understand this is a tactic and it's an interesting tactic, but it only works if you're not expecting it. So what does that leave us on our side? <laughs> I mean, look, the reality is there's a lot of churn. There's a lot of craziness going on I'm at a personal level, at a policy level. But the key is to go back to what does the law say? What, what does the Constitution say? What are the best standards of American history? So if there is something that has not happened over the last, you know, uh, two centuries or something that has not happened in the past, you know, presidencies, then we go, okay, why? And um, that doesn't mean that, you know, every single change is bad. But look, there are certain things that have become either laws or standards for a very good reason. And then it becomes important for people in this space to show some spine. And to stand up for what's right and to understand that, you know, there may be short-term consequences to that, but the long-term history is going to remember them better. Well, that's an optimistic note to end on. (laughs) Fisher, Bruce, Lice, thank you for joining us on the ER. Please join us next week. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.